0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: And I was really trying to, yeah, really get myself into a good market that I could still afford. At the time, I wasn't—I still wasn't on a very big salary. I think I was playing around, I was probably in the 50,000s kind of per annum salary.
0: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Taran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with award-winning property investor of the year, Sam Gordon who has a track record of building a portfolio of over 20 properties under the age of 30. Join us as we learn about the renovation from hell as well as discussing how to turn rundown properties into usable accessible equity and so much more. Did you know you can also get the show notes from our website for this episode? It's got Sam Gordon's main strategies, tips and inside secrets that can be useful in your own property journey. The show notes will give you the inside scoop on the little gold nuggets of wisdom all I guess share from the backstory and all their overall strategies and philosophies. Plus, you'll get a copy of the advice broken down and shared in a quick and easy to consume format. Just head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash notes and download it today. But for now, let's dive into the meat of this topic. Gordon and I jump straight in and explains how he came across the property which would ultimately change his renovation strategy for the better.
1: This one was based off, uh, I was looking to move into the Brisbane market. This was back in 2016, I think it was. Um, the market was doing pretty well and there was a lot of good stuff around. And um, pretty much I was, I was trying to find a really good little reno project. I was looking to do that for my next one. And uh, essentially, I came across a fair few properties I was negotiating on. And this one this one had really stagnated on the market. They were trying to get up near 300000 for it because it, uh, it was quite a good house. It was a double brick. Um, it was on a pretty big block. It was its own medium density. Um, big four better house the problem was it was very dilapidated um, and it would need a bit of work to, to kind of get it back up to scratch and um, I think they were trying to target kind of like a homeowner kind of a homeowner buyer for it and um, it just didn't go really go to plan the, the old sales campaign on it so by the time I came around to it um, I actually started the negotiations about I think I think they had it on the market at the time when they first listed it was offers over two nine nine. I think when I offered it on it it was about two six five, dollars um, and I offered And I offered offered 200 grand for it just as a starting bid to see how we went. Um, And essentially, kind of after a lot of backwards and forwards, we got it done at at, uh, 215. And after building and pest, I was having a little bit more off. So I ended up buying that one for uh, 212,000.
0: Oh my gosh, that's amazing. How long was it on the market for?
1: Uh, It was on the market for just, I think it was just over 80 days. So it was coming. 90-day window where the exclusive agency agreement kind of runs out. Uh, so, the agent definitely wanted to try and get a deal done before that ran out. So, I think um, she helped me out a little bit putting the pressure on the uh, the owner there to get the deal done.
0: Always the agent ends up because they obviously know that if it runs out, then they're going to try and get them to get an exclusive and then on top of that, <laughs> I guess that, that 90 days that they've had it in there, it's kind of like okay, what am I going to do? I need a commission. It should be a pretty easy one and, and it sounds like there's a motivation behind it. Did you find out what the motivation was behind why the vendor was wanting to sell?
1: Essentially, the uh, the owners of this guy these guys of the owner of that property, sorry, it was um it was an Aboriginal um, kind of trust, like non for profit organisation that owned a lot of properties in the area, uh, and they leased them out to I guess less fortunate families, disadvantaged families, um, and what they were essentially doing was they were liquidating as far as I know, they were liquidating a third or a quarter of their portfolio or something like that to go and put the money into quite a big property that they're going to renovate. And I think put a lot of the families into, into almost like a massive unit block or something. I think Um, there was a story with something like that. And they were looking to, I think what it was, it got to the point where they were shifting this bunch of properties and they needed a couple more done just before this deadline to, Cleared for these renovations that were coming up and um, I think that was a motivation that really allowed me to kind of work quite hard on it and get um, negotiate quite hard and get a really good price for it.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So obviously, they would have had a few other properties in their portfolio and you would have seen, you know, how much they were. So incomparable to the one that you actually purchased, did you actually see how much the other ones were actually worth as well because, you know, it was listed at $2.99 on the market. We always know that some vendors might overprice their property, and that's why it sits on the market for too long to be other prices that are well priced. How much do you think that property was realistically worth if they actually put it on the market and you know sold it? At- at the market value, which obviously sold for you under market value, but um, how much do you think it would have been really worth?
1: Well, there was two things here. So they had renovated a bunch of their other properties, did did quick cosmetic facelifts, any of them that were a bit dilapidated, um, and they were able to sell them for quite good money. This one was almost halfway through, or well, they just started a Reno, um, and they never completed. I'm not really sure why. Um, but all they did in this one was they they replaced the kitchen. It was really weird. They put a brand new Caesarstone kitchen in this thing, and they never finished it off. Um, So it was an absolute steal for me. Like, you know, like they come in and have this brand new kitchen. It was, it was a bloody big kitchen as well, uh, with the Caesar Stone. And yeah, but they, I think because they, Hadn't finished it off. It was like a half-done project that they were still trying to get a top dollar for. Essentially, I think if they'd listed this thing at around like two hundred sixty thousand, I think they probably would have started very quickly at two fifty. But I mean, as you know, when people overlist things and then they go stale, it's very hard to get that interest back, and people think there's something wrong with it. Um, so yeah, I think I think it was probably worth around about that two hundred fifty thousand um, in as-is condition, and I think post Reno, after what I did, it probably would have been worth back up towards that for this very high twos, maybe three hundred thousand. But that was after Renault, so they yeah they definitely they definitely uh, tried for too much at the start.
0: Being the fifth property in Gordon's portfolio, it's safe to say he was getting the hang of things in the Sydney market at this point. But expanding his portfolio into Brisbane meant he had to start his ground research from scratch.
1: I think to start with, I I kind of found areas that I wanted to invest in. I was following infrastructure, following a lot of different spending, um, trying to avoid oversupplied markets, and I was really trying to yeah really get myself into a good market that I could still afford. At the time, I wasn't I still wasn't on a very big salary. I think I was playing around. I was playing in the fifty thousands kind. of per annum salary um so i still had to look in the affordable corridor so i was looking sub 300 for a really good reno project that i could make a little bit of equity on pull that back out and go put it into another deal um and yeah so pretty much was just was refining my area searching areas it's a this the suburb that this one was in was a smaller suburb in a larger kind of um i guess quite a big and popular council in, in brisbane um but it was a smaller suburb within that that's quite often overlooked. Um, we've actually picked up deals for there with with clients in in the in the uh, through the buyer's agency business as well because people overlook this suburb because it's only it's quite small. There's only about two thousand people in there, which means there's only a very small housing market. Um, so it's not one of the big suburbs that everyone puts in their search filters. So that really, I this was a funny thing. I didn't even know in this suburb it was, and um, the what the agent I was looking at one of her other properties. And she said to me, look, I've got this other one over here. It's a bit of a Renault project. Um, Would you like to have a look at it? And that's when I came across it. So, um, it's kind of funny when that happened. I mean, it's just one of the other lessons I learned when I was in the, you know, pretty early years of my portfolio. Um, I guess one of the things to to look for sometimes is those suburbs that are often overlooked by other investors and, and even home buyers as well.
0: Has that also impacted on, I guess, the price value because being a smaller suburb, Is it because it's also a sort of a niche type of suburbs that means it's limited supply it could also have an impact on it just because the reason why I'm asking that is I used to live in a very smaller suburb and I'll give you the name of it. Um, I used to live next to a suburb called um, uh, Putney in in Sydney. Putney is a a reasonably well-known suburb which is next to also um, Gladesfield. But it was a tiny, tiny pocket. And then there was a, even a smaller suburb called Tennyson Point, which is actually where I lived. <laughs> and I had never, ever heard of it before. I heard of Glacier, I heard of Ride and so forth growing up. And I grew up in those areas. But then when we um, yeah, moved into that particular area, it was so small that whenever I told people that I lived down at Tennyson Point, they're like, where? What? I said, it's just this little, little pocket in, you know, very, very close to the water by, you know, Parramatta River. And um, eventually, obviously, we moved in there and people got to actually know where we lived and so forth but what I discovered after a period of time, it was so limited in supply because there's not very many of those properties particularly on the waterfront, it was priced very, very much of a premium type of market. Um, Gladesville, yes, is a very expensive suburb, Puntney, same thing as well but Tennyson, I mean it was kind of off the charts and you know, the the guys down the road from us literally when, when it was going through that peak boom. We not long before um, when we sold our property, I think it was in the the highs like 2 mil. Within about 12 months when the boom was happening, the property just across the road jumped to like 3.5, 3.6 mil. I'm like, (laughs) how is that possible in such a short period of time? And I guess it, it just goes to show that it, I guess when there's limited supply of properties in the area and such a niche and pocket market, it, I noticed that wow you know prices can skyrocket pretty quickly and I guess the the question comes back down to this did you find that same similar effect happening within that small suburb that you purchased in
1: yeah definitely I, I definitely did mate it was and it was funny because because of that reason I think makes it more of an owner-occupied driven market because that the local market actually really likes the area because it's not really sought after all that much by investors which was which was a really funny kind of um kind of turn of events because an investor probably would have picked that deal up if they'd come across it but for some reason yeah it was it was being overlooked i mean obviously immediate you know initially overpriced as well um but yeah it was obviously being overlooked by by the potential from an investment point of view and um yeah, but in terms of uh, the local owner-occupied demand, when there's renovated homes pop up, and because obviously I own property in that suburb, so I'm always tracking it now. Um, and whenever uh, well-renovated properties pop, pop pop up in that market, it's hit really hard by the owner-occupiers. So, um, yeah, I think it definitely carries weight. I think that yeah, that uh, that point definitely carries weight.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So it sounds like it is more of an owner- owner-occupier type of market at this point in time. And I guess when you went in there and looking at it from that point of view, it changed, you know, how how it actually was portrayed. Um, What I'm also wondering is when you actually came across that particular one, how many type of properties were there sort of like um, sort of housing because maybe you you can sort of just give a bit of background. What type of property was this? Was it actually a house, a townhouse, a villa?
1: This Aboriginal Housing Trust, non for profit they they built them pretty strong. Uh, It was a double brick so exterior brick or interior brick wall, um, low set. This one was a four-bed, one-bath with a uh, external carport as well um, so pretty well an indestructible house and very close about 600 meters to the local uni on a, it was just over, I think it was a 720 square meter um, R3 like medium density site so yeah, that was probably yeah, so four bed, one bath, low set brick.
0: Was there any development potential at that size because 700 square meters is pretty big
1: down the track, I think I think there could be. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm quite happy to hold hold tight and just leave that one as it is. But um, but yeah, down the track, there's definite there's definite potential for it.
0: All right. Well, I'm really really keen now to talk a little bit about this renovation. All right. It, it sounds like when you told me, I was like, what? You know, I I thought you know Sam do, doesn't do his own work. He usually gets trades you know people to help out and so forth. But this one sounds like you, you got hands on. You're you know got straight into it. Did the renovations yourself and so forth, and also got a few extra helping hands. Tell us a little bit about what you, uh, why actually you needed to do this type of renovation. Could you have done something else to it instead?
1: Yeah. Look, for, for me, um, at that point in the portfolio, it was very hard for me to save deposits. Um, I didn't have huge surplus income. I think back then interest rates were probably like, around that sort of time. They were probably around about five, five and a half percent. So the, the portfolio was positive cash flow, but not to a huge extreme. Um, just enough to you know supplement a little bit, but but not enough to easily save more deposits on top. So. It was back to the case of I needed to make money from every deal that I did. So this was just another one that I needed, you know, sweat equity in there, um, really force value. Buy it below market for one and then force value on it so I could pull that equity back out and put it into another deal. Um, so that's essentially what I was looking for and back then, I was definitely a uh, hands-on renovation man. I wasn't quite as, as busy as I am now with the business, you know, running my own business um, but back then, yeah, I was definitely looking for, for hands-on sort of renovation, value-add sort of style projects and uh, this one definitely
0: fit the brief. So tell us a little bit more about what type of renovations. Obviously, the kitchen didn't need to be touched so <laughs> we can leave that one out but what did you actually do on the property now?
1: Yeah, look, we had one, one full exterior wall down the left-hand side and this was probably probably quite another reason why owner occupiers were probably turned off. Um, Quite a portion of that wall had been graffitied. um, So, which you couldn't actually see from the street frontage. So it was on the narrow side that just had a footpath down the side, not the other quite open side that you drove in on. Um, So it needed, yeah, that entire wall needed, needed to clean. Uh, One of the beautiful things was, and I'd never actually come across this before, but the roof was, was, um, what were they? Like there were roof tiles, but they were, um, corrug- not corrugated iron so they're, they're iron sheets but I've never seen them before so like a collarbone full sheet but they were tiles and widthways, and I'd never come across them before um, and neither had the proper uh, sorry the sales agent So when uh, I went back with the building and pest inspection, a few of them were dinted and they were leaking into one roof. And I said, look, you just can't buy these things anymore. We're gonna have to re-roof the entire thing. So that's where I was able to negotiate a further discount. They agreed to do a a 50%, you know, we'll take care of 50%, you take care of 50%. So I was able to get another $3,000 reduction on that thankfully um the uh the handyman that i used had he had a few of them lying spare at the back of his house so he came out and replaced them while he did some other work and it cost me nothing so um so that was a great little value add on that one but um but just a few different things and it was like there was sagging ceilings because it was double brick and it had actually that brick faces had never been painted so they were they were open brick which is very very porous material um so that the entire house needed a interior needed a repaint, which was a bigger job than I uh, than I realised because I never realised I guess how how porous that material was. Uh, so put it in perspective, normally I would give a house two maybe three coats. This thing needed six six coats of paint because it just sucked it in. The first two coats I did it, and you couldn't even see it. You couldn't even see that I painted it because it just sucked it into the material. It was crazy. Um, (laughs) And then the next two coats were almost like a base and the two on top gave it actually a really nice finish. Um, But the
0: bathroom... This was the internal, you're saying, the internal walls. Could you have actually considered instead of getting more paint to have actually done maybe a plaster over the... We could have.
1: Sorry, I could have, but it was... um, I'd already kind of started. So when I was two coats in, I was like, well, surely that sealed it. So now we go on top. Plus, I was pretty—I was pretty, um, I guess, cash poor, like you know, in terms of that one. So I was trying to do it as much on a budget as I could.
0: I guess paint's cheaper than getting concrete or plaster. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's right. And it—it it did come up looking pretty good when we finished. And it was maybe an extra tub of paint, so maybe an extra 150 bucks, um, and obviously the you know applying it as well, the time it took to apply it as well.
0: That's crazy. I mean, yeah, it sounds so much fun to have done it, but like I remember when I did my first ever paint job. I was underwhelmed or overwhelmed, I should say, um, because I-, I painted a three bedroom, two bath townhouse in one of my uh, uh, investment properties. And um, I thought, yeah, it's going to take me maybe a few hours just to do. I totally, totally underestimated. It actually, it took me probably almost three days just to do the whole thing myself. And I did, no, I'm never <laughs> doing that ever again because it was just. Back break, back breaking work and it was just so exhausting too and and I guess you know I don't know too much about fumes and stuff like that but after a while you just start smelling paint all the time and you just kind of oh, don't want to do it ever again. Did you get any of those kind of feelings because you obviously put six coats of paint that would have taken?
1: Yeah, and it was the first time I'd ever used a spray gun, um, so yeah, it was. Um, I was pretty well covered for the whole week in paint. I was like, I was a yeah typical snow like full snowman like I look white for the whole week, full grey hair and stuff. <laughs> but uh, It was a good experience mate, it was, it was different um, but it definitely, it was a good kind of transform, transformation of that house as well.
0: After the break, we'll talk with Sam Gordon as he gives us a further glimpse into the realities of hands-on renovation.
1: It was very run down like I think someone had been smoky. like someone had definitely been smoky in it as well so the house was just very dark, dingy
0: shirt tips for first time renovators
1: you know at the end of it it's um it's honestly probably probably the most cost effective thing i've ever learned with uh, with renovations is is running people like that
0: gordon shares his worst moment in renovating history
1: this is the lowest probably the lowest point of my life i thought and this is probably the biggest lesson i've ever learned in renovations
0: and that's coming up i'm tom sharp and you're listening to property investory Are you interested in finding great deals like Sam Gordon does? If the answer is yes, then let Sam help you find them since he does this all day every day. I've asked Sam to offer a free 30-minute strategy session to help you put together an actionable property plan to help you build your portfolio just like him. To get your free strategy session, simply text 0499881040 and quote APS. Welcome back. Gordon and I jumped right in where we left off. He remembers this as being one of the worst moments in his renovation journey.
1: I can really actually say, quite hand on heart, really the lowest point of my life was doing that bathroom. So, what it was, was it was, it was quite standard in Queensland. It was a separate toilet from the bathroom and the, the bathroom needed a full a full makeover as well um, and, you know, vanity, tiles, all the rest of it, um, shower, shower screens and, and whatnot as well. But the actual, um, the actual toilet in there, this is the lowest, probably the lowest point of my life. I thought, and this is probably the biggest lesson I've ever learned in renovations, there's certain things you should put your time into and, and, and quite honestly do and there's certain things you should just pay someone else to do. have done it before many many times and i'd never changed the toilet before and i it was because it was double brick um it was ridiculously hard to loosen this thing and get it off um loosen the cistern off and essentially that was all i was doing i was just trying to change the cistern. i hadn't even changed the base of this thing and i was trying to change it it took me four hours to get this thing off and um i was just squatting in all this all this water had come out of the cistern and was sitting on the floor of this like 40 year old housing commission house is reeking of of urine (laughs) and I was just sucking this, like just breathing the stuff in. And it was honestly, I walked out of it at the end and, um, yeah, I I I think I, I was, um, I can't remember who I called. I called someone I just said that this is the lowest point of my life. Like I just had to walk out of the house and just like hose myself off. And I was just, I felt so sick. It was disgusting.
0: I could just imagine you walking out of the house or running out of the house and puking all over the grass and going, I cannot do this ever again.
1: It was filthy. I just, I just, I just got the hose. and I just hosed myself because I just needed to get, try to get the smell off. It was like you with that paint that you got the paint like in the nose. I had it stuck in my nose for, for the day, the whole day. And, um, now, this is the thing right? you've got to leverage what you, what you can do or what you're good at and just pay other people to do it because then when I went and got the system and brought it back as hard as it was to pull it off it was that hard again to put the new one on it was just a system I'd never seen before and it was just that, well I'd never done it before anyway but it just I was trying to watch all the YouTube videos to learn as I was going and it just, it just didn't work. I just couldn't get it off couldn't get it on and um, the, 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 the real lesson of the story came about a month after um, after I released it out and the the, the actual bowl, the toilet bowl, had had broken, and so they had to replace the whole toilet anyway.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a slap in the face! This- hey.
0: I would have just said, "No, nah, I'm getting rid of this property from now on. I don't want bad memories to scar me forever like that." <laughs>
1: It was one of those things. I just had to. I just had to say, yeah, all right, pay the bill, and I just tried to scrap it from memory. But, uh, but yeah, considering it was really the lowest, lowest renovation point for sure in my life, uh, yeah, I definitely won't forget that one anytime soon.
0: I guess you've learned your lesson. Never install a toilet ever again, myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'll leave that one. I'll definitely leave that one.
0: <laughs> Despite the horrific experience, Gordon ploughed through and began working on the rest of the house.
1: The big things were um, were the bathroom uh, that, that was that was quite dilapid- dil- uh, sorry dilapidated, uh, the the all the painting obviously needed to be done. It was it was very run down. Like I think someone had been smoke- Like someone had definitely been smoking it as well. So the house was just very dark, dingy, um, mainly just. And then there was also yard works. So so the main things you always look to do in a reno, uh, for cosmetic reno, keep it as low budget as possible, is your kitchen, your bathroom, your paint, your flooring and all landscaping um, and any fixtures and fittings if they need to be done like old door handles and, and uh, window furnishings and stuff. You can do those pretty cheap most of the time as well. So, I fully fitted that side of the house out as well for about 500 bucks. That was all door handles and even like we got, I just got some cheap Venetians from um, from Bunnings that overhung the window. So, it was big enough to do it. I literally did the whole house for I think it was about 150 bucks or something and it just, it really popped against the new, the fresh paint that went through it as well. So, you know, for the cost of that, it really, it definitely added value on that side of things as well.
0: If you remember or recall, how much the whole renovation cost you and after that, you know, when you rented out, what kind of rental return did you get?
1: Yeah, so I'm pretty sure the entire thing was just a tad over 6000 that, that every, And that included a new aircon unit as well.
0: <laughs> Even the aircon unit must have cost you a grand at least.
1: Well, it shows how far um, that sweat equity does go. So this, this was a funny story, this one as well, because I, I finished work on a... Um, this is one of the biggest lessons I reckon I could ever get. If I could ever teach anyone that was going to do their own reno don't try and do it on weekends if it if it is a proper full-blown reno if you try and just do it on weekends like i've done before very first properties is what i did it took me two oh no it took me about six weeks to fully renovate the two-bedroom unit just because i was doing it on weekends and after work and it was just really hard to fit it in so what i did with this one was i just took a week's annual leave and i finished up work on a friday arvo i drove up to brizzy from sydney picked up the keys on a saturday morning and then did a full-blown reno till um I think that Saturday night I gave the keys back, slept there, and then drove drove home on the Sunday. Started again on the on the Monday, so just did it in over a full week, but knocked everything out and had it had it ready to go. But it's one of those big things that I'd always say is make sure you, you set yourself some time and just go out there and smash it. Don't try and just fit it in around other stuff. It's just it's it's, it's how Renaults drag out so long.
0: Yeah, I've heard those stories many, many times. You know, it's like, oh, I think I'll just do it in my free time (laughs) on a weekend whenever I can but you get caught up and then you just, weekends if you've got family, you just got other commitments and so forth and it ends up never getting done and I I totally agree. If I had just block out a whole week, whatever I do anyway, I mean whether or not I'd be working on on a project and stuff, if I blocked it out for a whole week, it's just full focus. It's, it sounds like, you know, you did an amazing, you know, job. Obviously, there's some challenges as, as we discussed just now. But did you actually do all this yourself the whole time or did you actually hire anyone else to come in or even get some mates to come and help?
1: because it was brizzy um like i didn't have any mates up in brizzy at the time or you know kind of I born and bred and pretty much everyone was, was in sydney so i didn't have anyone that could come and help me on this one um, but what i did do was i hired a handyman just for a day to come in and help me finish off a bunch of different things um that's probably one of the biggest things biggest lesson i learned out of Renault's was do the labor intensive stuff that you can do all that yourself and then when it comes to stuff where you could use someone else um, like the kitchens, uh, sorry, like the the bathroom on this one. There's just a bunch of little things that I knew were going to take me a lot of time. Um, but if I built different things, like I built the vanity, right? We ripped the old one out, built a new one. Um, and it was even just things like that and cutting it in, things that I'd never done before. Um, to tell you true, I didn't even have the, the tools at the time to do it either, being the first like proper full-blown reno that I did too. Um, you just learn a lot of different things from those people and you can smash things out so much quicker. And a handyman typically costs you yeah, I think he cost me about... Um, I don't think I paid in cash. It was like 250 bucks for the day or something just to come in, and we just smashed out so much stuff. Probably stuff that probably would have taken me again, like the toilet, if I'd um, if I'd waited, and, and uh, sorry, if, if, if I'd paid him to do it, he probably could have done it quite quickly as well, having having done that sort of things before. Um, but yeah, it's, it's probably four days worth of work. Keen, I smashed out in the. That day as well so it was um, it definitely pays dividends hiring people you can um, doing a labor stuff you can yourself but when there's stuff you need two people be for or it's going to take you a bit of time you've never done it before get that expertise to come in and help you and you can you're almost a labor for him and he'll just smash it out
0: yeah I guess in many ways it, it you reflect back over this and you go okay it's great experience because then at least you know what people are doing because I myself, I've hired um, renovators to be able to help me do one of my other properties remotely because I, I wasn't able to get there especially with COVID. <laughs> Can't we get down to where I'm supposed to be and I trusted this person and did an amazing job because when he sent the photos across, the, pro- the property manager said he's an amazing tradesperson. I was very, very impressed. But the good thing is while I was communicating with him because I had done some renovations on my dad's property and a few other investment properties I've had as well, I knew exactly how to talk to him. Because when, you know, tradespeople talk, they've got their own lingo, especially when they're talking about like, you know, electricians. They don't call them electrician, they'll call them a sparky <laughs> or, or, you know, a, a chipper instead of a carpenter. <laughs> it's like those kind of lingo and then they talk specific things about, you know, wiring a snake down the wall. Like, you're going, what? <laughs> but if you've never ever done that before, you want to have a clue what they're talking about. So, it's things like that. I guess I've had some experience just like yourself. When you're actually working with tradespeople, you understand they're kind of... um lingo and it makes it a huge difference because when it comes time to actually get things done, at least they explain it to you and you don't feel like you've been ripped off because tradespeople can, you know, take you for a ride if you've got absolutely no idea and I, I've, I've had the experience before um, but then if, if they know that you know what they're talking about, they'll actually do things properly and genuinely and I think the hardest thing that i found with tradespeople is actually finding good tradespeople that will come on time and actually do the work. <laughs> So, yeah, it, it's all part of the learning experience and I think um, doing it once is fine, doing it twice, yeah, it's okay but doing it three or four times over and over again, you know, it'd be like slap on the wrist, get someone else to do it because your time's probably well worth better spent buying other properties instead.
1: Yeah, definitely, mate, 100%. Sorry, I'll just touch on one thing there as well that you were saying kind of came to me as you are saying that because it's so true um, in terms of that and knowing who to trust and how to work with them and stuff as well. One other little thing that I picked up on on that side of things was... Um, when you're doing jobs like that, if you are going to go out and do it yourself, like you doing it remotely is fantastic. If you, if you have people that you can trust to do it. But if you were going to go and do it yourself, one of the best things I reckon you can do is put them on an hourly rate and just get them to work with you. Because then, you know, they're not just going to bludge and, and, and fight us around and do the rest. But if they're on an hourly rate working with you and then you just keep pushing and just keep going and going and going, you, you get so much done for such a cost-efficient price, you know, at the end of it. It's, um, it's honestly probably, probably the most cost-effective thing I've ever learned with, uh, with renovations is, is running people like that. And they like it because if you're in there in the trenches with them as well and doing all this stuff with them. Um, and even a lot of them like teaching you different stuff as well, you know, like kind of passing on different stuff as well. Mate, you'd be surprised how much you could get done in a day just working one-on-one with someone like that.
0: That is such a great point I think you've raised there and I, I, I totally agree with you because I think once they actually know that you can actually get hands-on, they know that you're not just going to be just sort of standing back and just manage the whole project. I mean, it's great to do it that way but if they actually know that you can actually understand what they're doing, they really, really appreciate and actually do a better job for you. So, that, that's a fantastic tip. <laughs> Excellent. So let, let's talk a little bit about now that you've you've finished the renovation. Tell us a little bit about what happened after that. Um, how long did it take you to get a tenant in there? Um, did you get it revalued? You know what happened straight after that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Look, so so this one I paid two twelve for, um, and I all up the reno. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it came in at about the six thousand dollars. Now the when we leased this, so I also negotiated early access on this one. Obviously, it was vacant; they didn't care. So I got in. Um, it was a week before it settled. So I got in for that week before and knocked the full Reno out. Uh, by the time I left on this Sunday, it actually settled on the Monday, so it was kind of perfect timing. They listed it for lease. So we actually got three ten a week for that one, uh, which was which was kind of awesome. I can't remember what that came in at, but it was almost an eight percent return, I think, on us on the standalone house was uh, was was pretty awesome. So yeah, we got the three ten a week, roughly probably two eighteen purchase price when you factor in the Reno, and. Um, we, uh, so, the way I still operate today and the way I was working back then was I would wait 90 days for um, for post post settlement, go out and order a bank valve. And that one actually came in at 280,000. The bank valve came in at 280,000. So, I had a massive chunk of equity, ripped that straight out, and then bought one about a kilometer down the road. <laughs> did, did almost the same thing, you know, probably six months after that one. So, um, by the time it had settled, bought the other one, settled that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was uh, it was pretty good.
0: <laughs> so I guess for listeners out there and you know viewers as well, they're probably going, "Wow, that's that's really good." It took you a week, you know, dedicated time to do the renovation within that week, um, and you waited ninety days. So I'd probably say, let's say, hundred and fifty, hundred twenty, hundred, yeah, hundred days, hundred twenty days after everything was all done, you can actually draw out equity. So if you got it at, at 280 at two eighty, you would have made, and and you purchased it say two two twenty. Let's just round the numbers up. You would have made about a little bit over 60k in terms of equity from there. Um, obviously, the bank's not going to give you the full 60k because they're, they're going on like a, a basically an 80% val. But with that, I guess that explains to people how you can actually leapfrog from one property to another. Because if you draw out that uh, actually, how much do we able to pull out of that to be able to use it as another deposit?
1: I was able to pull out 90%. So the way a lot of the banks work as well is um, if you go with the same lender and then get, get a bank with that same lender and pull it back out of the same one, because I bought it at 90%, um, I was able to refi back up at 90% again. So I was essentially able to pull out over 50000 out of that deal to put into the next one. And um, you only pay the, the LMI on that difference of the top-up amount and really... It's it's how I was investing at the time. Still invest that way today. Still invest that way for clients. It's how you can keep pulling out and just keep moving. Because if you make that that money, um, the bulk of that was was essentially made in the purchase on the way in. We met, we bought below market. We probably bought forty grand below market, made that money. Yes, we value added um, with the Reno, and obviously the cash flows were a lot stronger from doing the Reno as well. Um, but it's really all in that purchase, and was able to yeah, pull it back out, roll it into next deal did it again and again and and, um yeah it's definitely uh pretty solid and it's it's very repeatable that's what i love about it i mean that's how i you know obviously got the portfolio the size we've got today is is from that that exact kind of system the systemized approach behind below market force value where you can but then just continually pulling that equity out and moving forward
0: If you learned a lot from the episode, stay tuned for future episodes where Sam Gordon and I'll continue to share with you more property stories from his own journey. In the meantime, I've asked Sam to give us a free 30-minute strategy session to help you put together an actionable property plan to help you build your portfolio just like him. To get your free strategy session, simply visit australianpropertyscout.com.au and fill out the contact form or you can text 04 99881040 and quote APS. Thanks for listening.